Welcome back to another episode of the Weekly Driver Podcast. My name is James Rea. I write an automotive column for Bay Area News Group, and I publish the website theweeklydriver.com. It's been online since 2004. My co-host is Bruce Aldrich, and today we have on a very interesting guest, Nick Camilleri. And Nick is the writer and producer of The Lady in the Dale, which is now uh, being shown on HBO. And Nick, uh, welcome, number one. And number two, could you give us a good synopsis of this very interesting idea that you had and what the special is all, the four-part series is all about? Yeah, sure. Well, first of all, thanks for having me. Sure. Thanks, guys, I appreciate it. James and Bruce. Uh, yes, I'm Nick Camilleri. I'm, I'm the director, producer, writer, creator, all those things, uh, whatever you want to say. I left a few titles off. I'm sorry. I left a few of the yeah, titles no, off. That's all right. Yeah, they all, yeah, they all just come in one right behind the other. But, gotcha. Um, so basically, yeah, basically The Lady in the Dale is, uh, is a four-part documentary series that covers the life of Elizabeth Carmichael. It's not nearly cradle to grave, but it really sets up from uh, Liz's teenage years and then leading up to Liz's transition, uh, and then coming to learn how she ended up finding, discovering the Dale automobile, the rise and the fall of that enterprise, the, uh, the subsequent scandalous trial that followed. It was one of the longest in the L.A. criminal court's history. Uh, and then after the trial, what happened to the rest of Liz's life when she went on the run, and basically the final chapter, which I would probably call an epilogue, that leads to her last life as a, the last chapter of her life as a rose sales lady gotcha. uh, in Austin, Texas, and leads to her death and what and why her life is um, is important as a figure in trans history. Holy smokes! I guess we're done here. <laughs> that's <laughs> that's good. <laughs> that's a wrap. Yeah, record time. <laughs> Thanks, Nick. So, um, Nick, um, Liz started this company called the Twentieth Century Motor Car Company, I believe. What was that all about? Uh, well, she worked at a company called the United States Marketing Institute, and it was a, it was an invention kind of design company where you would go in, invention marketing company for designers. They would come in and say, I have this idea. I, I think we might be able to create something out of it. And then USMI would say, well, can we market it? Is, can we bring it to market? Is this, a, is this a proof of concept we can do something with? And so a man named Dale Clips came in. He was an engineer at Litton Industries, which is, a, I guess you'd call it a rocket design firm. There were okay. a lot of them in San Fernando Valley at the time. They had a lot of, there were a lot of uh, rocket engineering firms uh, that built parts for uh, NASA shuttles. And Dale Clift was an engineer, and he built a thing called the commuter cycle. And that's what he called it. It was like a, just a two-wheeled. It's basically like it had a motorcycle. It back wheels like a motorcycle. It was a three-wheeled. Uh, I call it a contraption. Some people call it a doom buggy. Uh, but he drove it around Ventura Boulevard, and when he came into the offices, Liz Carmichael was working there. And so she, he came in and said, I've got this car. I built it. You know, it gets 70 miles to the gallon. This might be a thing. And so Liz Carmichael saw it and said, you know, we have a chance to do something really special here. So she ended up taking it and basically signed a deal with Dale Clip to license it and basically saying, like, I can promote this. I can create this thing. And then basically within a span of time, she had created an entire company that was operating on the first floor of 16055 off of Ventura Boulevard, which is a really like a central area, as you, you guys probably know. Um, that like it's a central area in Los Angeles. Sure. It's uh-huh. a high, high end district. And so she out of nothing created this company and then started taking in investments. And then so when she started taking in all this money, that's effectively what it was doing was she created a, another, she created a couple of mock-ups and a mechanical prototype and then began construction. She hired a bunch of rocket scientists. One guy had top secret clearance from, from the department of energy. Is the crazy? Like the, yeah, it is. Had, one guy was, one guy had, was the head of the Saturn five space program. It was just like, you know, you would never think that 
like unless you unless you saw it, unless somebody told you. So, um, but she ended up bringing all these people in and then constructed a prototype, and then eventually was burning through so much cash to develop this car that it was basically they were running out of money, and the government was coming after them, and so they it effectively led up to a climactic test drive that uh, I don't know if I want to spoil this, <laughs> but there was a climactic test drive. And um, but you see what happens uh, when you're trying to rush a car into production, and right. ultimately, um, for reasons that will be known to the viewer who watches it, uh, it failed, and um, and then that led into a, a trial that became mired in scandal. But the company was attempting to rush a car into production, and and saw the challenges of doing that, of really of how difficult that very process is, and how many people kind of get criminalized for it. So this car, this three wheeled contraption it was a tube framed naga hide covered vehicle is that is that how it is and did you guys make one for your production is it does it appear uh, so, in your movie yeah so the the so the uh, the commuter cycle itself is naga hide yes that was the original commuter cycle actually uh, i'll i'll put it out there but we a couple years ago Somebody got in contact with the Peterson Museum and said they bought a house in the San Fernando Valley and they found this car in it and they asked Wesley, is this car of any value? And it was a picture of the commuter cycle. It's, it, it, it exists. It's in Los Angeles somewhere. Wow. We don't know where. But somebody said they found it in a garage. And, um, and we haven't seen... They, and Leslie tried to get in contact with them again and, and couldn't do it. Leslie's the chief historian of the Peterson Museum. Yes. And he couldn't, uh, he couldn't, he couldn't get in touch with them anymore. And so we, we, it's out there somewhere. But for our, for the purposes of our production, we attempted to, um, we, we had a, uh, I guess called an information gathering phase, where we had an, a mechanic come in and see the actual mechanical prototype, the only one that runs under its own power. That's owned by a private collector in in Los Angeles near downtown, and that private collector let us go in and, and with a mechanic and do a, an evaluation what it would cost to actually restore the car because we wanted to restore it and actually have it drivable by the end of the series. Uh, but it turns out the cost was just, there's just too many pieces missing I see. Um, between, between how it got transported to things in the trial where the, where the Los Angeles district attorney took out pieces of the car to make it look less roadworthy. Like, and so there were pieces missing from Dallas and pieces missing from the DA, so it's like over time, it's like through osmosis, there were a lot of parts missing, so we never ended up, it was just too expensive to restore it. So for the purposes of the production, we never did end up restoring it, but you do see the mechanical prototype at the end of episode four. Hmm, okay. Nick, I, ha- we, I don't think Bruce has seen the um, any of the uh, story yet, and I haven't. I so want to now. I, okay. I can't wait, but um, I wanted to say that just so people knew that we we haven't seen it yet, but... Two, a two-part question. Number one, I have seen, and, and so has Bruce, and I think my wife has, and Bruce's wife, Bruce wife has, two shows that were on Netflix. One about a woman who was a very high-end jewelry thief uh, years ago, and then there was another more recent uh, film about a guy who was a very high-end wine uh, fraud. And uh, you may oh, have I seen saw that one. Yeah, and so I'm wondering if there are any. I don't want to say inspiration is a uh, the cliche, but did, did you um, take anything from those films when writing about the, your your uh, four part series? Because th- these people are 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 really in, in criminals in some ways. Um, and and what do you see Liz as a criminal, or do you see her as a hero? Uh, 
Uh, it's, I, I, I guess to answer the, the first part of the inspiration part, I would say uh, my first reaction is to say I come at it from a screenwriting perspective because I'm a screenwriter. Yes. So for me, my whole goal was like get all the events, get everything from A to Z because my biggest pet peeve in a documentary is when they don't have people to cover specific areas of something. Yes. So they go like, and then this really dramatic thing happened, and then one thing went to another, and then they just cut to another thing, and I'm like, and I'm like, oh. What were those things? What were those things? Yeah. And I'm like, what happened? Like, and, and that happens all the time in documentaries because I feel like most people don't come at it from a screenwriting perspective, and I do. So for me, I had plot points, and I was like, we got to hit those. This is, I need a complete story here. I want this to be like a scripted narrative. This is... And it was. I mean, her story was like that. So it's like, well, why not, why not do it justice? I'm not one of those people who's going to leave things to the edit. You know, people say, yes. well, just find it in the edit. And I'm like, no, nah, <laughs> that's not me. Yes. Like, I'm gonna, I'm, we're going to nail this. And so it really was an emphasis, a large emphasis on not only structure, but outlining and outlining and outlining and talking points and, like, hitting that stuff. And there's a lot of research. I mean, I prepared lots of materials for people to be like, sure. here's stuff to look through, here's stuff to think about. You know, to make sure that we hit on it. So I, I was never consciously thinking in that area. It was always like from a screenwriting perspective. First, to get everything from that you know in your head onto the page and make sure that it goes on camera. So those are the most important things for me. So I never really was just channeling a specific documentary at all. So that's kind of that. Um, I, I think my biggest inspiration was probably Wild Wild Country. Because when I saw that, that was what made me want to go to Duplass Brothers Productions. Yes. To, to go pitch them is because I saw Wild Wild Country and I immediately was like, that's us. The moment I saw the trailer, I was like, that's us. That's the series. And I was like, we have to do that. We have to be there. And once I had kind of a baseline of where I knew I needed to be, I like that made it I think, easier to write to that, to find, you know, to have it. And, and plus I knew her story was a tragedy. Yes. I knew that Liz's was, it, it was just a descending story that was just going to get worse and worse and worse. So you're kind of like, it's kind of like rock climbing. You got to slowly go down into the crevasse. You know, you, you're just kind of like descending and descending and descending. So I think it was kind of from a structure perspective and a tone perspective. You know, I, I think I had my own internal gimbal. as like what my own compass. Like I knew where I, I needed to go. And I think, you know, I try not to consciously look at other people's stuff for that reason. So that's the inspiration thing. So to go to your second part of your question, which yes. is like, was she a criminal or is she a hero? I, I view her as an anti-hero. I, I don't... I actually think she's one of the best anti-heroes I've ever seen. Mm -hmm. I, I think what's great about her is that, like, I, I don't have a business background, but I read a lot of business books. I read a lot of books about how companies start. And so for me, it's like, so she did nothing different that people like DuPont, Budweiser, Coca-Cola, like, all those companies do really, I'll just say, extra legal things to get by. <laughs> and she, and Thank she, you for that. She did all, yeah, and she did a lot of stuff that those companies did. And I, and I look at that and I go, she did nothing different. She did the same stuff that they did. And there's a lot of the, it's really the emphasis of, I, I think it really makes you question the American dream and what the consequences are and really what it takes to present yourself as someone who's pursuing that dream to fit the mold of, of the American dream. And I think there's something to be like, I'm a mother of five and an entrepreneur and like all that stuff. It's like, it, just, just see that and hold that up. I think it's just some, something very, very interesting to me. So, so there's that. And so when I really do, I really do believe she's an anti-hero in the sense that she never wanted to be an inspiration to people, but she never wanted to do that. She was in it for herself. But at the end of the day, like, because of her, you know, she ended up with, with a, there's a hearing that's in episode three where her transgender identity gets legally recognized in court. And it was a huge moment. Mm -hmm. And it was like, 
but she wasn't trying to do that. Like she was just because of who she was. That it was by her very nature. She wasn't a trailblazer because she wanted to be a trailblazer. She was a trailblazer because she just blazed the fucking trail. Right. Oh, sorry, I don't know if I <laughs> That's a podcast. You can't say like, that, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's so, okay. I, uh, I'll, I'll keep it down. <laughs> no, no, no. It's fine. Uh, but it, so anyway, I, uh, but it, you know, but I do stand by that. She wasn't a trailblazer because she wanted to be. She was a trailblazer because she just blazed the trail. That's it. Like, she's just, I'm going to go do it. And yes. at the end of the day, it's like, I, and, it, the, and the doc goes into detail about this, about, about how trans people have very few opportunities in life with very legit, very few legitimate work opportunities. So a lot of trans people actually work in organized crime because they're much more largely accepted there. So it's a very, very interesting dichotomy that like you have to see that she had to create her own opportunity because no one else was going to give her that. Well, she so had when you to... see it, it's like once you recontextualize Liz's life as the life of a trans woman, and not the life of, and there's this idea that all trans people are criminals. That's a common thing, like throughout the, throughout the world that like, you must be, you must be a woman posing as a man. Like you can't actually be a woman. Like you can't actually, you don't actually want to be a woman. My, my, and qu- it's a, it's, oh, go ahead. My, 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 my question wasn't about her uh, being a criminal because she was transgender. It was more the criminal of, you know, her, her business, but her behavior, her behavior, but I, oh, and yeah, I would so, never, so. never insult somebody who was transgender, but I, my quick follow up to you, uh, uh, part A and part B is, uh, and it's the only controversial question I'll ask you because it's just so fascinating is would you have sure. made your film if she wasn't transgender? I started out with the idea that I thought she was just an incredible character. Okay. Fair and enough. I think that, that, I think that, that to me was, that it was fascinating. I yes. thought it was, um, I think that was part of it. I don't think that was, I think that was maybe 20% of it mm-hmm. was that she was trans. Gotcha. I, I, what I came to learn and came to understand by the end is that um, it wasn't a Liz story. It was a trans story. So ultimately I left there being like, I, I remember saying she's trans, but that's not, that doesn't define her. And then I, and then by the end of this, I realized it does define her, but in the best way possible. But I didn't, I didn't start there, but I think I ended there with, with how important it was and the contribution she did make. Well, that's I think enough. as a trans woman. Yeah. Sure. She disappeared. And, I think this was happening in California, and they ended up finding her in, in Texas, I believe. Uh, yeah. Did, she didn't drive that Dale, did she? No, no, the car only ran a few times. I'm kidding. Yeah. <laughs> it wasn't going to make the so trip. Oh, okay. <laughs> it was a really dry delivery. Okay. Yeah. Um, but it, yeah, so it's, uh, but she, the last chapter, the last, I, I'll call it a chapter, but episode four covers the really the last period of her life, which is her life as a rose saleswoman. And she, uh, she had a, she had a business in Austin, Texas, where she sold roses and she had, she had a book, she had, they call it a, it's been called a compound, but it's really just a, really just a, a yard that had like a bunch of trailers in it and it was fenced off and she hired all these rose salesmen uh, to sell flowers for her. And that's where she was operating her business out of. I can't wait chance. now. That has a whole nother section that I never thought about or knew about. Yeah. That's even more fascinating. And she had five kids in tow. So how do you hide all yeah. those people? That's, that's amazing. Yeah. Well, I mean, she, she was incredibly um, industrious. As a person, I, I, she never stopped. You know, her mind never stopped working. It was always, you know, I mean, she. It gets talked about a lot in episode four, just her work ethic and how and how she kept working and, and the things that she kept doing. It was like she. It wasn't so much about hiding. I think there's a lot of places to hide in Texas. 
Uh, we, we, would, we would be remiss, Nick, if we didn't say that the HBO, it started in, in late January. Is that correct? On January 31st, I think I read? Oh, yeah, it screened. Yeah, yeah. the first two episodes screened on the 31st. And so uh, I don't know how HBO works, but could you please tell us, is it going to be, do they call it a rotation? How, how long, what would be the, the tenure of it being on HBO? Can, can you fill us in on that a little oh. bit? Oh, you're asking how long will it be on there? Yeah, yeah. What I don't know how HBO works. I know only Netflix and you know movies on. If sure. it's real popular, it stays for a long time. If it's not, it disappears. So or it goes on Netflix. Uh, yeah, we go. So what? What have? What have you? Uh, what kind of reaction have you had? And and how can people watch? And for for how long will it be on through the summer? Or or do you know yet? Sure. So my understanding, from what I know, is that is that HBO has the contract to. They, they own the series for seven years. Seven years. Okay, great. So it is. So it's on there. It's it's going to be on HBO Max. It's my understanding is I have a, I have a friend who, who works in programming who said it's been running about sixty six zero times a week on HBO for like the last three weeks. Great. So it's it's been running and running and running and like um, and then it simultaneously it airs consistently on HBO Max's catalog. So if you have HBO Max, any time in the next seven years, you can watch this entire series. Thank you. All of it will be on there. And if yeah, and if it, it's all up to them whether they want to renew it for another seven years. And if they do, it's just on there again. What and what they, kind of reaction have, have you had so far? It's only I, as you mentioned, it's only been a few weeks. Have you had um, lots of emails and phone calls and all kinds of things? Are you pretty excited about how it's been received? Yeah, it's it's got. I had a look yesterday. Someone told me it had a hundred percent on Rotten Tomatoes. Oh, great. And I, I had to look at there. So it's 14 critics' reviews. It's got the critics gave it a 100% rating on Rotten Tomatoes. Wow. I saw that the too. Score, yeah. The, yeah, the audience score is a little bit lower, but that's understandable because I had people say to me, well, I didn't see the lady or the Dale in the first 20 minutes. And I was like, mm. yeah, I understand. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm like, yeah, it's kind of a prologue. The first episode is kind of a prologue, so it's a little bit slow. I can see why I can see why you may have issues with people about like them being like, Come on, get to the lady and or the Dale. <laughs> yes. You know? So now, I, so the I other, get that, but it's been positive though. Now the yeah, other I've thing I don't really know excited. about the industry, I'm sorry to interrupt you. The other thing I don't know about uh-huh. the industry is that and we're here to talk about, you know, what you do, but there is a, a competitor out there, I think, on the horizon. Is that true? And and what's that all about? Uh what's I mean, it was it, I mean it was a neck and neck race. I think for a, for a bit, uh, but they ended up, we were very, very fortunate to get the people that we wanted to get on board who were extremely valuable. The biggest one being Zachary Drucker. He's the most important. Jay and Jay Duplass and Zachary worked together on the show Transparent. And so Zachary was like Jay's first phone call uh-huh. to be like, what do you think about this? And, and, and all that. And so Zachary was brought very, very much brought on early on the project um, to help understand and recontextualize Liz's life through the life of a trans woman. And so having Zachary on board and having those people and then being able to get a deal with HBO, it's like, was, was a really a, a great achievement and feat to get it when we needed to get it to. And we were just very, very fortunate that we were able to beat out our competitors by a couple weeks. Yes. So it was like, so we got the people and we got the place we needed to go and we got them um, just ahead of our competitor. So that was, that first part of that was like, that's part of it. So because of that, the dominoes, I would say, fell in our favor. And it was, so because of because of that, and I also think that you know we have been, I you know I, I've been doing this for like a decade. You know, yes. it was like I had all these materials, I had everything. Like I had all the engineers. Like I found the guy who test drove the car in 1974, and I found the passenger of that test drive. That's great you know, stuff. It was like that's the only you know you, 
who, who else would do that? You know, like it's, there was a level of, there was a scope of work and the body of work that I think was there. I think that legitimized the project, I think in a really major way to say that like, to say like I've got thousands of FBI pages like wow, sitting here that it took me six years to get. You call yourself you know? a screenwriter, but I think you're an investigative reporter. Maybe there's some yeah. crossover there. Yes. So I, I do appreciate that. that. That's very kind of you to say. I think, oh, you there bet. Is, I think there's some truth to that. But the other, so the other fancy that I probably question is the, um, the competitor. They, my understanding is that they got sold over it at the Toronto International Film Festival. I think. Gotcha. Um, but I don't know. I don't know much more than that, unfortunately. But I, I, you know, like like any project, it's really hard to make anything, and I just wish them the best. You know. That's sure. Really it. Nick, how yeah. did uh, um, the test driver and the did you say the test uh, passenger? How did what did they mm-hmm. feel about the car at the time? And you know their thoughts of the car and the project. Was it a something that was viable, or what did they think? That is a majority of episode two. Okay. I don't know if I ever want to spoil that. Oh, okay. To you. Fine. I think it's they do a very good job. Uh, specifically, the driver John Griffiths. He does a really good job of explaining. The episode two is really the entirety of episode two is about the construction of that car. Okay. Perfect. It's, it's, yeah. So I don't, I don't want to spoil it for you. Uh, they have some very strong thoughts um, about the process, about the construction, the process of that car, and ultimately what came to pass. I'll follow, uh, I'll follow up on that. In, uh, in your world as what you do as a screenwriter, are you also uh, a car enthusiast? Do you have some vintage cars? Or, or because of this movie, have you become an anti-car guy, perhaps? What are your thoughts on cars? <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> What are your thoughts hey, on vehicles? Guy now. Yeah, yeah, you only walk or take the bus. I don't know, but what 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 yeah. is your interest in vehicles in general? Yeah, I'm, I feel like I'm going to let you down here. I I've, I've driven the same Prius since 2009. Oh, that's and great. It's got about 250,000 miles on that car. That's just perfectly and great. It's, uh, yeah, it's um but I I think I became more of a car person because I had to the biggest thing for me when it came to Liz Carmichael was that if she had a life of crime a, a major rap sheet for decades prior to this. And yes. At one point, the, the police found all these books that said in the FBI files that said, you know, uh, that Liz had all these had these books on criminal law, and it said she is intent on conducting a career solely intent on being a criminal. Wow. And that was like, and so that to me, when I read that stuff, it was what really mattered to me was the Dale car because the Dale car was the litmus test. It was like if this car isn't real. Then, then I don't care about her. That was the truth. Yes. I, I was just like, then she's just, just another scam, and I don't care. But if it's real, I was like, then, then I care a lot about her because suddenly it matters that she's trying to do something real and she's trying to, she's trying to whatever, turn over a new leaf or whatever you want to say. But I, so I had to really become versed in the car to really understand, like, how much of this is real? And like, I had to come to learn what a breadboard was. And I had to, I had to listen to the engineers talk about it. And I had to listen to Jerry McGinnis, one of the designers, be like, you know, it's a breadboard. It's for working out mechanical problems. This is a design prototype. This is a mechanical prototype. Like, you have to, it's like doing an autopsy over years. You have to understand how much of this is real. And like, at the moment I saw the blueprints, in the moment I saw uh, the mock of the blueprints in the development chart, I saw a chart of the 25-man team who built the car. And I was like, holy crap. And the, you know, the, the moment you see all this stuff and you're like, and you listen to the attorney, it's Jay Garner's defense attorney, Mark McCarley talks about it, where he said there were daily production meetings and he's talking about what's in the production meetings. And I'm crossing, I have notes and I'm going over notes with McCarley being like, do they have this here? What about this thing? What about that thing? 
And then in 2017, I finally got into the garage to see the mechanical prototype. And it was, um, I got to see it, the private collector was very nice in letting us in. And so we got to see it and I had a mechanic. I spent about, I think about six hours with the mechanic going over every inch of that car. That's great. Like, is, how real is this? How viable is this? With what went on, you know, like, and then when you talk to John about it, um, there's some stuff that's not in the doc, but like, there's stuff that John says where it's like, well, there's very clearly an intent here, like an intent to construct this car. And like, but it's really about how real is real in every sense. So I think I spent about four years just coming to understand the Dale car. And that to me, I think was like incredibly valuable. I think that was the greatest crash course in automobiles. I probably ever could have gotten because sure. before then I would just hit the button and the car would turn on. And <laughs> I was like, yes, I did it. Yeah. I'm a genius. <laughs> and then like, and then now I do it and I feel like I have a better understanding where now I walk around my car at times. I'm like, okay, how's that? How's this? Sure. You know, you, you gain a knowledge about stuff that like it suddenly I'm become, I've become so much better. I think it just, it's just a core level or at a base level about like what automobiles are. Sure. So first, first, for her historical perspective, Back in the mid '70s, we're talking about there were no Priuses back then, and mm -hmm. cars were getting, you know, it was great to get under 20 miles per gallon, and this car was supposedly going to get 70. So that was the lure, mm -hmm. I guess, to for investors to to really look at this Dale, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and a lot of it on a conceptual level, it's like it depends on you know how far they would have gotten down the line and how much would have succeeded, and like it's. It, I mean, it's tough. It's like that reminds me of the Elon Musk thing where, was it the automatic transmission? I can't remember what it was. Where I was reading a lot about Elon Musk. So to make a car, and then not only make a car that gets 70 miles per gallon, you know, a lot of the, the stuff with the dune buggy was meant to be a small car to, like, go to the grocery store or, like, you know, or go to or run errands or something like they that. They call them city it cars now, right? The little city cars. Yeah. And, it's, you know, it was meant for, I, I think some people think it was meant for, for large trips or to go places, but like I've seen the, you know, there was a, a fourth blue Dale we found in the desert in the process of doing our research for this. Cause there were supposedly only three, but we found a fourth one in the desert and I ended up buying it and giving it to Liz's grandson. Then he said, he's going to build it as a real Dale. And like, and, but when you see it, you see the car up front, you're like, this wasn't meant for like long trips. This was meant for, I'm going to, I'm just going to run errands and stuff. So I think, Sometimes it helps to recontextualize to be like, this wasn't a big car. It wasn't like a Coronado or something, you know. Or sure. A it was like a Thunder or anything. It was meant to be like a smaller car. Nick, so I, I that, when you kind of get that, you know. I, I wanted to follow up, and I should have asked this earlier, is that yeah. when you mentioned her five children, and uh, now you've mentioned a grandchild, um, there was the, and I, pardon me for not knowing this, but was the family cooperative? And did you have contact with some of them? Or is that in some of the episodes that we're going to see soon? Or... Or uh, what was the family relationship? No, I, I certainly appreciate that humility. Uh, at least you warn people. Yes. We're speaking out of ignorance. I just speak. Uh, but it's, <laughs> they, uh, you know, they were very apprehensive. The Michael family was incredibly apprehensive because they had been screwed over by the media so many times. Yes. It was, they were, I mean, people used to, they used to do bad stuff. That's all I'll say. Is that yes. Their, their family confided in me that, that the media treated them horribly. And so, you know, I came in, I wrote a letter to Jerry Bouchard, this is granddaughter. She's in episode four. Yes. And I, and I wrote a letter to her, I think in early 2017, I uh, fuzzy on the date, but uh, I sent it to her saying, I'm not a journalist, you know, I'm a screenwriter. Like I, and, but I've been doing this story for the last six years. And I think we have a chance to tell her story and tell it right. And her family 
uh, mostly Liz's daughter, Candy, and, uh, and Liz's son, Michael, like, they did not want to meet with me. They, they, I tried over, a, a, I think, a three-year period to try and meet with them, and they just they didn't want to in any sense of the word. And so I, we slowly got, um, Jerry Bouchard did her interview, and then, we got, and then Jerry Bouchard convinced Michael Michael to do the interview, but it really was about Candy, because Candy was Liz's oldest daughter. Candy was really the only one capable of telling Liz's story. Because they only had, there were only three of the five children left alive at that time. Thank you for that. And after, yeah, and at that time, it it really was only Candy, that was it. And so Candy is a huge cornerstone of this entire documentary. But it really took all of the grandchildren to say to the elders, you know, we don't know this story, and it's going to die if you don't tell it, and you're the only ones capable of telling it. That's that's and, a and it, yeah. I'm gonna say that's a great. Just hearing it that way with. Uh, the story is going to die if you don't tell us. That, that to me, is, uh, I'm not a screenwriter, but that's really all you need to know is that if, if it's going to go away unless it's told, and it's a good part of history. And um, I, I Personally, I, I feel really bad having not seen it yet, but I can't wait because we have HBO Max at home, and I'm, I can't wait to, to jump in. So it's, it just sounds so fascinating. Um, is there one last thing that, that uh, a base, I'm sure there's many bases we haven't covered, but is there one more thing that you want to stress uh, about uh, what you've made, and and do you have something else on the horizon that you can share? Yeah, I I think the first part is is that like, you know, to me, I accepted right off the bat that Liz was a trans woman. I never really thought about it ever again. I was always like, because her life was so large, her yes, life was so huge in scope, that I I never really. It took me years to kind of round back I, I, to get to that portion of her life. Yes, but I think I ulti- I ultimately came away because at first I thought I don't want to be prejudiced or anything. I don't want that. I don't want people, I don't want people to see and go like, well, this is a story about a trans woman. I want this to be like, no, this is about an antihero, an incredible antihero. And that's just part of her life. But like, I really did walk away with the story that like, that her, Liz's transness defines her in the best possible way because she's a survivor. And yes. I'm not, and I'm not um, condoning her criminal actions. I think it's important to just go in there and do the, the surgery and break them apart. And say that like there are things that happened solely because she was trans, and there are things that happened because she was because she conducted criminal acts. So like, and we're not condoning that stuff, but I think that's what the the series does well, and I think it it does it it does it well, which is it separates those two things because that's a common thing, which is that trans people are criminals, and and so what we did was go in and go no, like there's a trans life here and there's a criminal life, and they're not the same thing. What do you and have so on the horizon, think, Nick? Uh, I'm back to screenwriting. So that's what I did before this, and that's what I'm doing afterwards. I'm, I am officially retired from documentaries. I'm okay. done. This is, the, is the only one I ever wanted to make. Can you so, share what's uh, out there for you? Uh, I've got another. I've got a. I can. I can't explicitly say, but it's a biopic. It's a World War II biopic based on another absolutely insane story that no one has covered. Great. And I found it. I found it in a chapter of an old book somewhere, and I was like, holy crap! When I read this, and I was like, I immediately was like, this is it. This is the next thing. And so that's what I'm doing now, and I'm rewriting it. And uh, I'm, work- I'm writing it before this call, and I'll be writing it after we get off. And uh, but that's, that's the next thing. It's a feature biopic. That's great. Great. This is probably a good, a good time to break, Nick. Um, we, yeah, I, would sure. talk, I would talk all day about it, but I'm, you know, we've got plenty to go on on your plate, and we're going to go on as well, but um, we want to remind everybody to check out The Lady in the Dale 
on HBO Max. And uh, as we found out, you know, for at least seven years, you can check it out. And it, I just can't wait. So thank you, Nick, for, for being you, our Nick. guest on the Weekly Driver podcast. We we um, will do our best to let the public know about it. And we appreciate your time today. Thanks a bunch. Uh, thank you so much. It's so easy to talk to you, too. Oh, I, I, it means a lot. It really does. Okay. Thanks for the compliment. We appreciate it. Take care, man. Yeah. All right. Thanks. Uh-huh. Bye-bye.